Doc Rivers continues to time and time again not get it when it comes to getting... Oh! Let him play! You bet one one bone to win 19. I'm sorry. Where, what site do you use where you can actually bet one buck? <laughs> they let you do 50 cent bets. Oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> yeah. yeah, literally like he dropped Superman down like the drain. Comes out. Like, God damn it, Superman. <laughs> I don't know, honey. I don't know where he got that from. From Los Angeles, this is Dave in the City. Part of the Dit Cow Sports Network. Now, here's Dave Medina. Good evening, sports fans, and a pleasure to have you here for the big golf show. Good to have you with us from the Dave in the City Studios at the home of Champion Southern California. We're glad to have you back with us as we recap the final of the four major championships in golf this year. And it is a championship that has been on a bit on a hiatus because they did not reschedule the um, the Open Championship in 2020 during the pandemic, whereas the other ones did with with no fans and so on and so forth. So there just wasn't the major. It just it just went vacant for a year. So it's back. You had all the fans. You had full attendance. Obviously, there were some so there were some restrictions for safety and medical reasons, and it all seemed to play out pretty well from that perspective. In on terms of in terms of the on field action at Royal St George's in Sandwich, Kent, England, it was an exciting tournament, and you had action every single day. And on um, Friday in particular was really action-packed. And it led to a showdown between two or three guys. And by Sunday, it was between Jordan Spieth, Louis Louis Oosthuizen, and Colin Morikawa. Oosthuizen faded early in the round, as it tends to happen with him. Um, Spieth hung tough for a while, but in the end, Colin was just too good. And he wins the 2021 Open Championship in England. In when conditions that really were as good as I've ever seen across the pond, I was honestly mesmerized by how good the weather was. I'm not used to bright skies and clear skies and and uh, dry and relatively dry conditions and no wind. So it was an unusual tournament for sure. But it was great. So I I really think uh, it all worked out for the best. So let's go bring in Mike in North Jersey. John is on assignment. Andy is also on assignment tonight so uh it'll be just mike for the most part unless john were to pop in uh midstream um but we'll keep an eyeball on it just in case so mike welcome back to the show this has been this has been just a terrific tournament so uh how are you tonight i'm doing well dave thanks for having me on absolutely and and again i i think morikawa's moment in what has been a very good start to his career. It reminds me a little bit of Jordan Spieth in that he won a lot of majors really early in his early in his really early twenties. He's twenty. Uh, Morikawa's twenty four now. He had the PGA Championship win with some great shots. Then this year, more of the same. And I think it's just remarkable. I did want to remark, remark on this right off the top. Like his uh, his accuracy off the tee was as good as I've ever seen in a major. Like he rarely missed the fairway. And I think that really set the tone. But I want to give it to you first for your thoughts on what really has been just a tremendous performance in what was a very competitive tournament this year. Yeah, well, uh, this was a historic win for Colin Morikawa because he became the first person ever to win both the PGA Championship and the Open Championship in his first start ever in both. 
So I think it says a lot to the intelligence of the young man, his ability to adapt to certain conditions. The PGA, not so much, because you, you know what the PGA is. It's generally a difficult golf course, but the setup isn't too tricky. And it's kind of, it's not that different from what you'll see week in, week out on the PGA Tour. You'll get some tour stops that'll play pretty similar to a uh, PGA Championship. But the Open Championship is a whole uh, different ball game. This is a style of golf that you will play once or twice a year. The twice a year being if you go over and play the Scottish Open. And it really takes some getting used to because you can't attack pins the way you normally do. you got to flight the ball differently. Uh, it's just it's a different type of golf that, especially with the modern game, you're not used to playing. But Morikawa in his first ever Open Championship was able to adapt to those conditions and uh, get the job done. So I guess if we want to go through his final round. What's very interesting about this is that if you look at Colin Morikawa, you know, since we talked about him last, it's become more apparent what his strengths are, what he's not so good at, and uh, where he's maybe just sort of average. So he is not really in the mold of the modern successful player, which is this power game, uh, hit the ball as far as you can, gouge it out, and uh, do what you can from there, maybe make some putts. Morikawa is a guy who honestly doesn't putt that well. He Going into last week, he was ranked 170th on tour, strokes gained putting. He's not a lawn hitter. He's 114th in driving distance. But what does he do well? Well, he's 13th in driving accuracy. And despite not being a lawn hitter, he is in the top 30 in strokes gained off the tee. And if you go through strokes gained off the tee and look at the top you know, 50 guys, it's usually lawn hitters because that's what we figured out, at least with how the game is played now, that length is really more important than accuracy when it comes to driving. But what really sets him apart is his approach game. Now, he's first on the tour in strokes gained approach. Uh, now, all right, that in and of itself is impressive, but he's gaining 1.5 strokes per round against the field approach. And his diff- the differential between him and the second place person uh, is something like, I think, 0. 0.7 or 0. 0.8 strokes. Now, these are just numbers, but to try to give you a sense of what that is, there hasn't been anyone besides Tiger Woods in recent memory that's done that. So the differential between Morikawa and everyone else on tour is enormous in terms of his approach game, his iron play. But that's not what won him this tournament. That's not what set him apart in this final round. If you want to go through his final round, there's really there's three key stretches you got to look to. The first one being where he kind of kept things afloat. The second where he went on his little run. And then the third, where when Spieth started to challenge, that he was able to make a, have a couple good holes and give himself some breathing room. So that first stretch I alluded to, three and four. What does he do on three? He hits the ball way left. The third green is that par three. It's kind of plays into that valley, uh, but the green is up a little bit, so it falls off on each side. And uh, 
what does he do? He plays a very creative shot from left and below the green where he bounces the ball into the slope and basically knocks it dead. That was not, that was not an easy shot. And that took a lot of guile to hit that shot under these circumstances. And at the time, Oosthuizen is still even par. Yep. So, yeah, and he remember he's starting off one shot below Oosthuizen at the time. So, that's big to keep him where he was going. Then maybe more important is the fourth hole. Now the fourth hole is a tough hole. It has that uh, Himalaya bunker, which. We want to get into the course. We can talk about how maybe they can adjust that. But you have to play over that gigantic bunker, and the hole's almost 500 yards, so you have your long approach in. Now it's a tough shot. Second shot's tough because it's long. But he gets it way right. He's right of the green, he's below the green, and he's in the heavy rough. So what does he do? He basically hits this flop shot to seven feet, and he makes the putt. Then he gets on his run, this stretch of four holes where... He really takes advantage. He gets to seven. Hits it in the first cut. Puts the second shot short left of the green on the par five. Now, this is where it's, this is really like the pivotal point of the tournament right here is where uh, Morikawa and Oosthuizen have both played their second shots on seven. They're tied up at this point. Oosthuizen is in the bunker on the right. Morikawa short left. The hole is kind of cut on this ridge where Oosthuizen has a favorable angle. Now, granted, you're in a pot bunker at the British Open, so it can be a little dicey, but he has room to get over the lip. Morikawa, on the other hand, has it doesn't have much room to work with. Uh, he basically will have to land it right in this one-foot area, or he'll be short and roll back, or he'll knock it past, and all the, he'll have a... Uh, not an easy putt, to say the least. But what happens? Morikawa hits a brilliant shot that leads to birdies, maybe four or five feet away. And what does Oosthuizen do? Oosthuizen catches the ball cleanly out of the bunker, hits it clear over the green into the other bunker where he can't play out forwards and just has to knock the ball back onto the green. Yep. And he bogeys what had been the easiest hole on the course. And anything that I, Spieth and Ron both made eagle on this hole and Morikawa made birdie. So to make a bogey on that hole was particularly bad. Now he's in the driver's seat. What does he do? We see him play towards what is normally the strength of his game. On eight, tough hole, fairway, perfect second shot from 200 yards away to a few feet away and he makes the birdie and that that kind of kills Oosthuizen there because Oosthuizen also hit a good shot there but didn't make the birdie then 10 or excuse me 9 9 fairway green birdie right so that's his 3 in a row uh, he's up I think 4 at this point and then 10 now 10 he could get into some trouble what does he do? Way right again on his second shot. Um, way below the green again. And he hits another flop shot up to 10 feet away. It makes the par. So at that point, he he's in good shape. But then Spieth gets on that run where he played a stretch of eight holes and six under after starting a two over. And then Morikawa has an important two-hole stretch, 14 
and uh, 15. 14 is that uh, second par five, the one where Dustin Johnson blew up 10 years ago, where it's reachable, but there's water on the right or out of bounds on the right, I should say. Um, again, he is short left of the par five and two. And he kind of has a difficult, it's a difficult hole location set up similar to the first par five where the hole's on a ridge. And this time he does not execute the pitch shot as well. He doesn't get up onto that level. It rolls back and he has about a 25 foot putt up like a, a slope. And what does he do? He makes the putt, which uh, very difficult, not something you could count on. Yep. That give, gives him his breathing room. And then 15, he gets into trouble uh, again way left with the second shot he's got about uh but he's able to get it to six feet and he makes his par and at that point he's up to and he's able to hold on so but what does that say about it it says that really except for a couple holes he won this tournament or at least in the final round he was able to close this because he putted extremely well and he was able to get up and down in big spots. And he is really not putted well this year. He's one of the worst guys on tour. So um, in a way that that's sort of incredible to see, it's something that, um, you know, when we saw Rory McIlroy on his big run, he was never really able to do like winning a tournament without your best stuff. He won the tournament on uh Sunday without having his best stuff for sure. Yeah. But he was able to bear down and execute the shots when he needed to hit them. So just a very impressive performance. Um, and really a uh, fitting end to a, a terrific major season. I can see how surprised you were regarding the putting. And I, I do remember that about Morikawa, how bad he was with the putter during the last year or so. So it's a really interesting point because I, I didn't even think about like his putting history going in. I just saw him knocking it down. Oh my gosh. And like, especially after the third, like on the third one, I was like, oh, he's not going to have three birdies in a row. And he did. It was like, wow, that was definitely that moment that where I thought, oh man, he might take this, you know, because you had Oosthuizen who you knew, well, I wouldn't say you knew, but you had a good feeling he was going to fade somehow, make stupid mistakes, which he did, especially when you mentioned four, that was a really... Big turning point for sure. Um, Speed definitely gave it a run, though. I have to give him a lot of credit. Um, and we're going to play this a little differently tonight since it's just Mike. I mean, yeah, Speed actually looked pretty good, too. I, I mean, I know that he's had a lot of rough years. In the last two years, he's been much better. Um, I, I do want to stand more car for a moment, Mike. And I will say that I'll ask this question. Because it's fitting that Speed is the one that finished right behind him. Because I remember when Spieth won his, you know, bunch of majors early in his career. But it didn't really amount to much in the after with that because he just couldn't find himself. He was struggling with, with getting the getting the ball accurately. He just kept missing putts. And I wonder if Morikawa might do the same thing. What do you think as far as his game, what his game might bring to him as far as Morikawa in the, in the years ahead? Do you think this is going to be a continuing thing for him? Or might he have similar struggles as he, you know, gets into his mid to late twenties. Uh, Spieth and Morikawa are different types of players, really. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The thing with Spieth was when he was winning, and when he had that year in twenty fifteen, which 
let's be honest, he was a couple strokes away from the grand slam, which is truly incredible. It's I, I don't think we've really quite appreciated how good that year was. It's really it's close. It, obviously, Tiger won the four majors in a row, but what Speed did in 2015 is like it's close to what Tiger did. It's close to what Hogan did in '53. It's as good as any year Nicholas ever had. So yeah, but I mean, you remember it? Oh yeah. It was like the the guy would just make every single putt possible. <laughs> it, it, it was it was insane. Yeah. Now, look, you can have perfect speed on putts. That's doable. But to get the line to actually sink them at the rate he would sink them, there there was like. There was an element of luck to it, mm-hmm. and there was certainly a um, – you could tell that the way he was striking the ball, it was like, well, I don't know if that level of play is really sustainable with that level of ball striking. Now, he ended up having a lot of trouble uh, and really fell off the map in terms of being able to drive the ball straight. Uh, he was able to improve on that quite a bit. Uh, and that's what's led him to bounce back. But Morikawa is a different player than Speed, though. He's, um, like I talked about earlier, he's a very accurate driver. Right, right. He's a very good iron player like Speed was. Mm-hmm. If I was going to have concerns about Morikawa, I would have two. The putter, right, would be one? Well, yeah, the putter would be one, and the thing is, as you get older, putting gets worse. Now, for years with Rory, we always talk about, well, he's working on the putting, he's working on the putting. Yeah, but the thing is, does anyone really get that much better at putting? I mean, some guys do when they change like to a different method or whatever. But in reality, I almost think putting is something that you have or you don't have. And you tend to be better at putting when you're younger. Mm-hmm. So... I would think the most likely thing that's going to happen is that Morikawa will probably get more inconsistent with the putter and will have less hot days. Now, as that happens, it will get harder and harder for him to win. Um, now, how long it takes for that to happen, who knows? It might not happen for 15 years. It might happen in five years. Uh, I don't know. It's hard to say. The other thing is that the way his game is built is like not the way that most guy I talked about this earlier too. It's not the model in which most guys uh, are winning with. So I do think that there's probably some courses, Augusta national for one where it favors power golfers a lot more mm-hmm. And I do think in, at venues like that, he'll be at a little bit of a disadvantage. So th- those would be my main two things is that, okay, there might be some venues where he's a little bit at a disadvantage at. And um, what happens with the putting as he gets older? Because it's not very good right now. Mm. You can have good weeks, but where does it go? It's hard to say. Well, I think that's a very astute observation. I, I think that though his approach being the way it is can will kind of give you a feel for what will happen. We just don't know when. So that's that's an interesting point. And the putting is interesting because I feel like the ones who putt well 
will have a better longevity and will probably just have more shots at it, just in general. A good example is John Rahm, who, even though he really was kind of a fate, was kind of lurking in the shadows for a lot, he had a great final round on Sunday, and it's because his putter was really doing it for him. And he just continues to impress me in his putting ability. You know, he won, he won the U.S. Open just a few weeks ago, and even though you know he was never really a serious contender for winning the for winning the Open, you know, meaning taking first place, I still got to give him a lot of credit for how well he played on Sunday. I mean, can you speak to Rom's ability to continue to be pretty consistent? In these events, and and his, and uh, you know, and, and I'll just say it's in part to his putting, but he's just been a great. He's just been playing great golf overall, Mike. Yeah, Rom is really coming uh, into his own. Although I I will disagree with you a little bit about his putting. Oh, yeah, he got going. He got going later on, but he missed a ton of short putts early. Um, you know, I, I don't have notes on his misses, but Dave, I can tell you that in the first six holes. I saw at least three or four times where he had very makeable, somewhat short birdie putts, and he missed. Oh, like he you know, sh- that's right. He, yeah, he yeah. had a lot of chances. That's right. He could have shot 62 on Sunday if yeah. he had putted well. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, he has been making some great long putts, but a lot of these like shorter ones, really big missed opportunities. Like you, It really added up. Like He could have been, he could have even been ahead by two if he had made all those. That's a good point. Very much so. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is that the same thing with him happened last week uh, at the Scottish Open. Mm-hmm. He was hitting the ball great, um, but he just he could not make a putt. So, I, you know, I don't know. He he sometimes is prone to missing short ones, but you know, Rom is just such a brilliant ball striker that you feel, and he's able to do it. At, He's able to generate so much power while still remaining under control that you just feel like, all right, most weeks he's going to hit the ball well enough that he's going to put himself in a chance to win, uh, put himself in position to win. And if he could just even have decent weeks putting, that he's going to be right there at the end on Sunday. He's just, he's really coming into his own uh, as a player and uh, living up to a lot of the potential that we saw uh, early on You know when he came up. Yeah, I agree with that, Mike. I really think he's in for a bright future in the in the years ahead. It's cool to see. I knew it was only a matter of time for him to win his first major, so it's cool to see that. And I think he'll be in the mix for a lot of them. Um, I was a little surprised, maybe I shouldn't be, but I was a little surprised that Shoffley was not more of a factor. Now, you did, he, he finished at 3-under. I mean, so he made the cut, but... It, you really didn't hear from him much <laughs> during the weekend. Um, we can talk about him, but let's maybe expand that to the field. There was a lot to talk about here. Uh, Kepka did pretty well. I have to give him some credit. I mean, he finished top 10. DJ kind of making a run late, too, was interesting because I was like, oh, wow, what happened to him? <laughs> Suddenly, he's just making this putt and making that putt, and he finishes in eighth. So that's pretty good. Berger, Hovland. I mean, there's a lot to talk about here, Mac. I'll give it to you to cover the rest of the field. I guess we can talk about both uh, DJ and Brooks Kepka because uh, similar stories for the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them were, I think it was five under after the uh, going into Saturday. And on listen, a, a Saturday round, which was not easy, they really picked difficult pin locations. The wind was a little bit up. Not nothing crazy for open championship standards, 
But Brooks Kepka shot 72 on uh, Saturday. And Dustin Johnson shot 73. And that really, for um, all intents and purposes, finished both of them. So that was disappointing because I remember looking at the leaderboard going into the uh, weekend saying, okay, we got Ustazen, we got Spieth, we got Morikawa. It looks like Kepka and, uh, you know, they both had really good Fridays. It looks like they're building some momentum. Oh, we could be set up for a really stacked leaderboard on Sunday. And both of them just spit the bit. Uh, I'm not sure why exactly that was, but... You know, they, they were just both off a little bit. I, Dustin Johnson, I guess maybe you can say, well, he kind of has some ghosts at this place. Uh, may, maybe the, those reared their heads. But uh, that was a little bit surprising to see both of them um, to see both of them struggle a little bit on Saturday and really put themselves in, in a position where they were not going to be able to win. Uh, that was disappointing to see because they're both they're two of the most talented players in the world. We'd want to see them in the mix. So it's too bad that happened. Um, go around the uh, go around here. Let's see. I guess we can talk about Mackenzie Hughes just because this is the second straight major where he was kind of in the mix. Well, he was definitely in the mix at the U.S. Open. And based on his career track record, you wouldn't expect him to be uh, – you know, in contention in two consecutive majors, but I'll be interested to see what comes of this. Is this going to lead to a higher level of play for him? Are we going to see him in the mix more in the PGA tour, maybe win a couple events? I don't know, but he's given you something to at least think about or talk about or watch for. So I don't know. Impressive showing from him uh, these last two months. Where else should we go? Uh, Should we get to, uh, DeChambeau, or should we? Uh, no, I'll, <laughs> the feud. I'll, I'll hold we'll, off we'll, on him. we'll get to that eventually. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, um, Shane Lowry did all right. I mean, it was kind of neat to see that too. I mean, he yeah, he did. Um, Seventy one on a Thursday, which was easy. Really put him behind the eight ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in decent position though uh, after Friday, but he wasn't really able to do much with that. Um, Marcel Seam was a nice story. He had kind of worked himself in the mix on Sunday, but he had that eight on a, uh, what was it, a par five? Yeah, I think he had an eight at some point down the stretch, and that finished him uh, from contending. Tony Finau, what else is new with him? Puts himself kind of in the mix uh, going into Saturday, but then Sunday, uh, yeah, on Saturday shoots 72, and then puts up a 67 when it's basically worthless. So that's kind of what you would expect from him. <clears throat> Tommy Fleetwood with the, uh, you know, open being in England this year, you would have thought maybe uh, this would be a great story if he were able to win. I don't think there's been a, um, Was it Falda who won the last Open in England by a uh, Englishman? Oh, no, I think all his they were saying yeah. that it was like fifty years since it happened. Yeah, it wasn't Faldo. Yeah, I think that's Faldo's what I remember. the last Englishman period to win an Open. Yeah, so correct. yeah, yeah, it's been it's been fifty years. So 
Um, you know, obviously that's a lot of pressure mm-hmm. to live up to, but you, you thought maybe he would do a little bit more there. Uh, Rory McIlroy, uh, just another very disappointing performance. Yeah, you know, he started off. Uh, well, it was pretty typical. On he, I remember he started off Thursday. I was watching his round, and he stiffs it on one, makes birdie, stiffs it on two, misses the short putt. And then it, it just it all fell apart from there. And that's basically a story with Rory McIlroy now, which is that he misses these short putts and then he hits these absolutely horrendous wedge shots that miss by a mile. And you can't do that. And I don't know, but his confidence is just completely shot. Um, although, let's see, if you want to give him a little bit of a break saying that he's switching swing coaches and that you can't really expect much right now. Okay, I'll kind of buy that. The problem is, though, that he won at Quail Hollow while doing the swing change, working with Pete Cowan. Or I don't know how much of a change he's really doing, but going to a new instructor. He's already won with the new instructor. So some ways there's an excuse, in some ways there isn't. All right, before we get to DeChambeau, I guess we got to talk about Oosthuizen. Yeah. Uh, For our last recap, I said, you know, there were two sides to this coin. The first side being that, okay, he has these six second-place finishes in majors, which, uh, yeah, that's obviously disappointing. But at the same time, that him doing that has clearly established him as one of the premier players of this era. When we go back and we think about this era, we'll remember Louis Oosthuizen. But this one's different. This one is just very clear that this guy under pressure feels it and he doesn't quite execute. And you saw that happen again, uh, really over the whole weekend, Sunday in particular. He's at 11 under um, going into the weekend. Now, I, I won't get on him for Saturday because... As we alluded to, Saturday was tough, and he shot 69. So, you know, he actually played pretty well on Saturday. Um, At least played well on the front nine. But when he really had a chance on Saturday on the back nine to sort of put the foot down, he wasn't able to do it. And then on Sunday, you could just tell that he wasn't quite there, except for the first hole. Had a good first hole. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this a few times already. It's just he starts to he comes in with like these different this different ball flight. He hits these sort of spitty shots that will go up and to the right. Um, It's just a typical thing we see from Oosthuizen is just this miss short short right short right short right short right, and you can tell he's just not he's not making the same kind of contact, and really the only explanation for that is pressure. So. I don't know. You know, it's disappointing. This is a guy who I know he doesn't have that many wins relatively around the world and only has the one PGA Tour win, which, you know, counts because the Open Championship counts as a PGA Tour win. No regular PGA Tour wins. But this is a guy who should have three or four majors. Honestly, they showed a stat about him, which was crazy, that I was seeing on Twitter all over, uh, all throughout the week. Louis Oosthuizen is five strokes away from having five major championships. 
or I think, you know, excuse me, he's six strokes away from having five major championships. If you look through his career and you give him six strokes throughout the majors he's played in, he would have won five majors. And then there's another one where if you give him 12 strokes, he's at seven majors. So think about that. Every time you see a guy just miss a putt or lip one out or whatever, think about that. just the few of those that you see. That's the difference between Louis Eustace and having the one major and having as many majors as Kepka or McElroy or even more than them. That's yeah. how close he's been. But – uh, this is going to stick with him for a long time. I mean, to be in the mix in three straight majors, not get the job done in one of them, uh, that, that, that's going to kill him. It, it, is. It, it really it is. is. It really is. Um, but, you know, he, he's an interesting guy. Like, when he won the Open Championship, you know what he did? He What he did with the money is he bought a tractor and bought some more land so that he could farm. Like, that, that's what he likes to do. He's... Uh, I think from a relatively rural uh, part of South Africa. So he's just, I don't know what, what he's looking for in life and what brings him pleasures is not something that you being from LA, me being from the New York city Metro area are right. really going to identify with it. It's a different type of life, but you know, I, I, I said he's done, but in one sense, if you think about it, the Open Championship's going to St. Andrews uh, next year. His results there, one by seven shots, lost in a playoff. So, actually, I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the mix there, but I wouldn't expect him to win because there's just a ton of scar tissue. Yeah, it's it's tough to see that. I mean, he was really – he was way ahead at in the early stages of the tournament. And there was even comments from my friends that, man, he might just run away with it. And I was like – it was a really interesting study for me because I thought, is Louis going to let this get to his head again and then give it away? And and to be honest, I was leaning toward yes, and it really did. Like, it, it didn't even take that long. Like, by Sunday, you know, he, he had lead and barely, like, six holes into the round, you cited hole number four where I think things really shifted for him. He really wasn't in control of it anymore. And it's just disappointing to see it because he's got such great talent, but I do think it's getting to his head at this point, Mike. Oh yeah, he he wouldn't be human if it wasn't getting into his head. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a lot of scar tissue. Um, I, I I guess I will get into Deschambeau now because mm-hmm. we had yet another just uh, complete <laughs> clown show from him. <laughs> In terms of all-time stupid, you know, his comment about shooting a 44 at the U.S. Open and basically (laughs) saying, well, it's all luck, that might have been the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But what he said at the Open Championship comes pretty close, where he yells that his driver sucks and complains that on mishits he can't hit the fairway. Dude. If you miss hit a driver, why the hell would you expect it to go in the fairway? It, 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 it just it, it defies all common sense or any bit of knowledge about golf. And then what was really crazy about this was him throwing Cobra under the bus saying, well, they can never get it right. And uh, I try to work with them and the driver always sucks. I was actually somewhat surprised about this, that Cobra came out the next day and had a rep absolutely trash him. Wow. They had a rep come out and say, yeah, 
basically he's a huge baby. He's always whining. And you know what? When we're making you a five-degree driver, which is not available on the market, and you swing it at 130 miles an hour, how the hell do you expect the miss hit to go in the fairway? So it, it just goes to DeChambeau's inability to his inability to take responsibility for anything he does. He always has an excuse. Nothing's ever his fault. He just deflects. And, you know, the thing is, he I, I said this last time, he talks to us all like he thinks we're all idiots. And, you know, I really think that's the case. I think DeChambeau thinks he's like maybe the smartest person on earth and that everyone he's talking to is a complete idiot. And he just he lacks the self-awareness and the social awareness to realize that he comes off sounding like a complete imbecile. Mm-hmm. I you're saying oh, my miss hits don't hit the fairway. Of course, my miss hits don't hit the fairway. No one's miss hits hit hit the fairway. And the thing is, when when he swings as fast as he does, um, you know, you're not going to. You, there isn't much margin for error. So I don't know what type of club he thinks is going to get developed that allows a complete miss hit basically to fly straight and go in the fairway. Because I tell you right now, if they do develop a club like that. I'm 90 percent. I would say 99 percent sure. But with the way the governing bodies let distance get completely out of control with the pro game, who knows what they would do. But I would say 90 percent if they're able to develop a club where you hit it open and it corrects itself. I'm pretty sure they would ban that type of club and say, no, you can't use this technology. So, I don't know what the hell that guy's talking about. Um, His strategy on this course really made no sense. Uh, just trying to bomb away everything. You know, one of the things that distance gives you as an advantage is, especially at a British Open course, with how firm the terrain is, you know, DeChambeau can hit, like, he can have a driving iron made for himself, and he could probably hit that 320, 330 yards running it along the ground, but he didn't want to do that. And then he also has this advantage where... um, where, because especially because of the length of his short irons, he can come in with less club on his short irons than basically anyone else, which even among the other pros, there's not much of a difference with their short irons if you look at uh, the numbers they'll hit from. But there is with DeChambeau. So instead of him realizing that, okay, my length still gives me an advantage that way, he just tried a strategy that frankly made no sense and um, – yeah, his play kind of showed it. He had he had a good Sunday, but I mean, who cares at that point? He was uh, three over par and fourteen strokes off the lead. So, yeah, you know, if he, he wants to be happy about a backdoor uh, t- uh, top thirty-three, uh, go for it. <laughs> yeah, he's very stubborn, and it, it and and you knew that courses like this that 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 require precision and and thought would undermine him. And they certainly have. And I don't even think it's necessarily the course that undermined him. It's just his own his own ego that undermined him during this and the U.S. Open and then courses in recent vintage. So it doesn't seem like he's going to have a lot of staying power in terms of his ability to compete in majors. Like, I, I really think he's committed to this philosophy. So I'm not feeling very sympathetic to him either for that reason. So, Mike, I do want to talk about the course. Um, Vietrade has this comment. 
he said that Doggy, meaning Christopher Mad Dog Russo, said the tournament was boring and he, as in Mad Dog, could have broke 71 on this course. Now, I don't think he's being fair about that, but I did want to get your comments on Royal St. George's. It was a very unusual situation, as I mentioned at the top. The weather conditions were outstanding. I mean, everybody was, was shooting well on on Thursday and Friday, and I'm just not I'm just not used to that in an open. Like I'm used to wind, I'm used to rain, I'm used to clouds. It was none of that. It was actually pretty warm. It was the hottest day of the year for those guys on Sunday. So, I mean, were you surprised at these conditions, and how did it affect the the, the course? What did you think of the course? Like, did you think it was boring too, or what, what was your thought? No, I actually, um, I actually generally like the course. Mm-hmm. Um, what I will say is, I'm just quickly looking something up. I apologize. Uh, it, yeah, it has to do with uh, my answer for this. So, okay, all right, got my answer on that. All right, so here's what I would say: Is this Royal Portrush? Is it? Um, Is it the best open championship venue? No. But I do think this is a good course. Um, I do like the look of it where, you know, it, it, it just seems like you're on this very much that you're almost on this grass covered sand dune and the holes just kind of naturally weave through them. You have a lot of that undulation and mounding in the uh, fairways. And then, I, you know, I like the greens here. The greens, uh, the, there's some pretty tricky green complexes here. You know what the course almost reminds me of? It almost reminds me of Pinehurst in a way, mm. in that you, you cut through these sandy areas and then you kind of have these domed greens that can be very tricky. Um, so for a course that is only 7,100 yards and on a day where the wind didn't blow that much, to have, what was it, three guys get to double digits under par? You know, that, that's a pretty good challenge. So I don't know what the hell Dog is talking about. He <laughs> I don't wouldn't... know what he's talking about either. I was blown away by that comment. Because, like, <laughs> I, I listen to Dog pretty often, and it sounds like his golfing ability is actually, I mean, very different in terms of strengths, but it sounds like him and I shoot similar scores, generally mm-hmm. like 80s, 90s, whatever. I wouldn't come close to breaking a hundred on this course. I, I probably wouldn't break 120 set up the way it's set up. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't know what the hell he's talking about saying, <laughs> if you want to say like, look, if you want to say, okay, we didn't have these crazy conditions. We didn't have like the winds, whatever the, the heavy squalls. Yeah, I get that. We didn't have that. And the last time that we had the uh, open championship, it was probably on, what some people would say is the best course that they go to. Uh, I mean, they hadn't gotten there in 50 years, but they're going there now, uh, Portrush. So, I mean, listen, it has a couple holes uh, near the ocean. I thought the fifth was uh, particularly a beautiful hole. Um, So, you know, I do think it's a good course. It should stay in the Rota. It shouldn't be taken out. Um, And I just think that okay yeah maybe in a sense it was easy or it wasn't like you know super challenging but if you think about it what course do they play what course do they play the open championship at where 
if you give them four days of sunny or cloudy weather, winds that basically don't get over 20 miles an hour. You had one day with like decent winds Thursday, uh, Thursday, the, the late wave Thursday, um, you know, had some breezy conditions. But other than that, you had pretty benign conditions. If you get that at any open championship venue, you're going to see low scores. I don't care where they go. So I, I would say dog is wrong about that. Um, yeah, it's just if there's no wind and there's no squalls, you're going to get low scores. And if only three guys get to double digits under par, considering the conditions, I think the course held up. So, yeah, is it the best course in the Open Championship, Rota? No, but I do think it's a good course, and I enjoyed it, and they should definitely keep playing here. I I agree with you. I enjoyed it as well. I think it was a nice visual. It's always cool to have a seaside course like that. And the helicopter shots were awesome, so I enjoyed it too. You had an oh, inter- but oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. On that point, so mm-hmm. well, wait. You know, you, you said I had an interesting point. Why don't you follow up with that? Then I'll okay. Uh, well, I hopefully you. you'll remember your 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 counterpoint too, because my point. What I was going to ask is about Portrush. You mentioned it has been 50 years since they've done an open there, which I find really surprising. If it is in fact to the, to the prestige that you spoke of earlier in the podcast. Why has it taken that long? Is there something to that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Dave. Portrush is the course in Northern Ireland where they had it uh, two years ago. So, oh, okay, okay. Two know, years the, ago. Oh, yeah, so the Open traditionally is in Scotland or England. And okay, okay. Even though Northern Ireland is the UK, it's still, it's still Ireland. So it's kind of like, uh, especially when you had that whole period of violence, which yes, you called the yes. Troubles from Very like much, the 60s yeah, that's a great, and the yeah. 90s. Yeah. So that made it problematic. And mm-hmm. I just think there was definitely a, even when that went away, there was definitely a subset of the RNA that was probably like, look, this isn't an Irish Open. This is the Open Championship. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be in Ireland. So um, that's what really... Uh, made it take so long so it hosted it once in 54 and then mm-hmm. it was it was actually more than 50 years almost 70 years yeah uh between trips but uh actually on that front i don't think they've officially announced this but it was all over the news uh in the uk during this week apparently they're about to award the 2025 open championship to royal port rush so oh. it seems like they're going right back there okay that is big news well, I was not aware where it was. I didn't realize it was part of Northern Ireland. That would make more sense now. Okay, so that's that's interestingly note. So yeah, all in all, I think that I think it was a solid course as well. Uh, now I'll give it to you for the other counterpoint you had. Okay, because we're talking about Open Championship venues, there was a <laughs> uh, statement released by <laughs> the former President of the United States during the final round, and uh, apparently he was unhappy that the Open will not be held at Turnberry, which he bought, uh, I think, sometime in the like 2011-2012 and basically said, you know, this course sucks, That uh, these other courses suck, they should have it at Turnberry, but they hate me. And he also uh, made it a point to refer to himself in the third person and mention that he's won many club championships 
Although Rick Riley did uh, ran a piece on that where apparently these club championships are actually made up. So that, that, that was pretty uh, humorous to see. But you know what? Listen, if we want to talk about this seriously, the RNA is not a liberal group of people. In fact, I would venture to say, I mean, granted, they're not Americans. They're probably an extremely conservative group of people. Now, if you have become too much of a lightning rod and too much of a uh, controversial figure that you're driving away other conservatives who are the point uh, uh, that they'll say, we can't have a co- uh, course owned by you host a um, open championship. You know, what do you expect? So, but then again, you know, we're trying to rationalize a completely irrational person. But if we want to get into what will eventually happen there, will Turnberry host a open championship again? Uh Yes, I would think so. Based on the quality of the course, should it? Yes. Uh, but it's it's not going to as long as it's owned by Donald Trump or even the Trump family at this point. Um, regardless of what you actually think about him, the point is he's now a political figure. And I think even if it wasn't for, you know, all the uh, controversial stuff surrounding him, I still think it probably would have been removed anyway because – you know, they officially mentioned it like recently after they took the PGA away from Trump National, the RNA came out and said, oh, by the way, you know, Turnberry is also off the road right now. But it had been said for years, even before, like the really crazy stuff with Trump started to happen, that Turnberry was out as long as he had owned it. So, um, you know, his golf course uh, ownership, Turnberry removed from the Open Championship Rota. Doral removed from the PGA Tour and Trump National Bedminster uh, had the PGA Championship removed through it. So, so much winning from him. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I am, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that was an important point. Um, so that, that concludes our coverage of that golf course. Let's talk about the media coverage. And I, I don't really have a lot to say, but there was a lot of coverage and I will give him credit for that as usual. Um, I didn't think it was so bad. I thought it was decent coverage this year, but I'll give it to you for your thoughts, if any. Yeah, a couple things. Um, you almost have to give any coverage this year an incomplete because of the COVID restrictions right. going on. They can't be on the course, right? So, yeah. That's yeah, like uh, Coke wasn't there. Maltby wasn't there, which mm-hmm. was unfortunate. Um, Azinger and Hicks were calling it from a studio in Connecticut, not calling it uh, – live <laughs> excuse me just getting over a cold i don't know if you can uh, tell from my voice it's a little bit off but um uh what was i saying azinger and hicks from the studio yeah and then the other thing was is that nbc did not have their own cameras there this oh, time so what we saw was actually the world feed uh from sky sports And that obviously produces its own challenges because, you know, you have a production team, but they're not like with the same camera team. So you have to like sync up different things. And I think with that being the case, they probably did a good job. And there weren't like too many obvious moments where you were like, okay, this is clearly a different feed than what uh, it's not NBC's feed. And you can tell it's screwing them up. We didn't really see many uh, instances like that. So in uh, one aspect, that was a good job. Um, 
One thing that Sky Sports, uh, the world feed, clearly is doing very well is, do you remember those shots where they were like zoomed in on the golf ball and you could see what the lie looked like in the rough? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that in any like U.S.-based golf coverage, and I think it really adds a lot. You know, you'll see like uh, over here, the last uh, Bones Mackay uh, on NBC or Dottie Pepper. Oh, what do you think the lie? They're like, oh no, not look, not good, or oh, it's not bad. But we don't actually see it. Right. Here, right. They were giving right. you these like zoomed-in shots of what the lie was like, and if you've played golf, it's like you're able to see it. You you know like okay, that's good. They will be able to do this or it's not good. So it just, it added a dimension of knowledge that you're not getting on uh, us based golf coverage. I remember someone, uh, someone tweeted at Chambly. It was just become a total clown. Uh, just like basically mocking NBC and saying, why can't you guys think of that? I never noticed that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, and then like he just yelled about a bunch of stuff saying we were the first to do this, 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 and this, but that's basically Shambly. Now he's beholden to sponsors and that's what all his opinions are mm. anyway. Um, so that was interesting. I thought that added a good dimension to the broadcast. Um, Azinger is just, it's just not good. Yeah. I mean, th- there's yeah. nothing he really says at this point that excessively annoys me, but he just never comes through with like an insightful comment. Right. It's just all things like, oh, he's going to be feeling the pressure now. I don't know. This is a tough. It's, it doesn't add anything to the broadcast. Mm-hmm. There's really, there's got to be someone better than him out there. And uh, how old is Azinger? Is he getting towards 60? Because. Yeah. Yeah, if he is getting towards 60, maybe someone can replace him. The thing is, though, I I, I don't see the obvious guy out there right now. Um, I know John, I remember uh, last night was saying, well, Duvall in the brief bits uh, that he's seen him has looked pretty good. So, But I, I, I don't know who the guy really is. I don't think the person out there to become like the next good, really good color announcer is – really in the field right now and azinger is 61 so hopefully we only have a few more years of him left so mm-hmm. um yeah it's just he brings nothing to the broadcast I don't yeah care. um getting to some other aspects of it now i know this is only like a few hours and it, it it's really sort of inconsequential but why the hell is the early coverage and the late coverage on Peacock Premium. I mean, I can watch five seasons of The Office on, like, the first five, so not like the crappy ones, the good ones. I can watch <laughs> the first five seasons of The Office for free on Peacock right now. Right. You're telling me that I can't watch um, a few hours of The Open at one thirty in the morning and then, like, the, the last two hours when it's just a few people out there, you're telling me that they can't make enough selling the ad revenue that they can run during that. To, so to me, that's just, come on, just, it's the open championship. It should be shown. Uh, the RNA should be more forceful with their negotiations. And, you know, since we're going to be heading towards the Olympics, apparently this is going to be a problem with the Olympics. I heard that a lot of the uh, basketball is going to be on Peacock premium, which I, I don't know why the hell, uh, I don't know who actually the governing body they'd have the uh, contract w- would be with if it's the IOC. I would think it's the IOC, else. yeah. Yeah, but. I would think so too, but 
Yeah, uh, so they're moving a lot of stuff behind the paywall. I thought that was pretty bad. No, um, that's bad. Yeah, I. Yeah, I'll go keep going. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, right now it's okay. It's it's nothing of real consequence, but I don't know. You start to get into that slippery slope area, so I'm a little bit worried about that. The second thing I will bring up is. The Open Championship app is absolutely atrocious. There's, like, no good shot tracker thing. They don't have a way to, like, bring up live shots or anything like that. And the RNA is just such a long-standing, powerful entity. And for them not to have, like, a better app experience at this point is really inexcusable. It's embarrassing. I mean, yeah, no, it, it, it honestly is. Yeah. And while we're on the, while we're on the RNA... Um, I also give them some slack for not like producing uh, a good highlight package. If you see all the um, major championships now, if you go on YouTube, like right after, you'll see like every shot from Colin Morikawa's fourth round, or you would see you would see that at the other majors. So they like constantly produce things like that. The guys who are in contention, you you can just watch them every shot of their round, and it's really good. <coughs> Excuse me, but um, the Open Championship doesn't do that. Now, a few people were like spliced it up themselves, and sure enough, I went to watch to just review uh, Morikawa's round, and I saw one last night. I go to look at it today, and lo and behold, the RNA uh, put in a copyright claim and had it taken back. <laughs> Why? What? Yeah. What? Oh. It's so petty. Why aren't you producing this content yourselves? Oh, golly. Doesn't this remind you of, like, when Umer would put up those clips and CBS Radio would ask him to take it down, and then they would they couldn't do their own as well? It's just absurd. Like, it just speaks you, you to... Know what the, you know what the really funny thing from uh, Umer was? Remember when Mike debuted on a Fox Sports One, and the intro to his yes, show was clearly cool. just clips that they ripped off from like his audio files. Exactly. Every single one Every of the things one. of Mike yelling were Umer clips. They just ripped off all his clips. That's exactly yeah. what that was. You're right. I totally picked up on that. Unbelievable. Oh man, but uh. Yeah, so anyway, poorly produced RNA. Um, okay, uh, anything further on that, or, or do we can just move on to the, the road ahead? Um, well, I guess one thing. Uh, you know, we didn't get to see him on the Open Championship coverage here, but this was the uh, first Open Championship in about 50 years without Peter Alice, who was just a uh, legendary golf announcer uh, based in Britain. Um if you listen at all to like the early morning European tour coverage, you'd hear him. Uh, just a brilliantly witty man. Uh, had one of those like soothing, somber voices. Uh, he was just an absolute pleasure to listen to. And, you know, he was probably like, you know, I know Nance is good. Hicks is decent. Peter Alice was just by far and away the best like color I mean uh, play by play guy golf had so he lived a long life but uh, it's unfortunate he's no longer with us and it's honestly unfortunate that we weren't you know that we wouldn't have the option to have uh, listened to him at the open championship all these years you know it sure would have mm -hmm. been a better uh, 
better option than uh, Azinger and Hicks. So yeah, uh, yeah, he yeah, it, it was just uh, you know if you want to just like look on YouTube for him and you can see some of like his highlights of mm-hmm. his coverage he was also a, a very good pro in his day too so it's Ooh. kind of an interesting path that he went from being a you know professional to not strictly a color guy but doing play by play um yeah oh keep yeah, there, was one, there was one other like media related thing i've been wanting to bring up this year but i've you know i kept forgetting to do it and it's a sad story mm. which is that uh tim rosefort who was the golf channel insider You'd see him on TV, bald guy with the glasses. Uh, it was always like having, uh, telling like, uh, you know, locker room stories. And he clearly had a lot of close contacts with people. Well, he retired a couple of years ago and it seemed like it was a little bit early, but, you know, he was in his 60s. So it's like, all right. But it came out that, uh, or he announced at least that he's suffering from Alzheimer's. And unfortunately, it seems like he's not doing very well because he was uh, honored at the memorial by Jack Nicholas this year. And even though it's only been like a year since he announced this, he, he wasn't at the memorial to accept the award, which tells me that his condition probably Ooh. isn't very good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he was always, you know, Golf Channel was always doing like the, you know, the excessive Tiger Woods, like cheerleading. But Rosa Fort was always he was a very knowledgeable guy he was always up to date on stuff he he was really good at what he did and the outpouring of support from the fellow uh, media community saying listen this guy had the most contacts with in the golf game of anyone but besides that he was just always willing to spend time with younger people if they like asked him for advice or whatever so it seemed like he was a really good guy and you know for um in his early sixties to be afflicted with this is very unfortunate. And, you know, you keep your fingers crossed for him that they're able to make a, a great breakthrough with that disease. Cause it's a terrible disease. And, you know, he's actually, he's like the second high profile golf media guy. Um, yeah. Golf media guy to uh, have this happen to him in the last 10 years. Cause there was Peter Oosterhouse, who was the longtime um, CBS announcer who in 2012, same thing, uh, Alzheimer's retired. Mm. He actually, he did one of those Ferrity episodes a couple years after the announcement or maybe a year after. And he still seemed like he was doing all right, but you know, it's been many years since then. And I haven't heard anything publicly about him either. So, you know, I, he's probably not doing well either. So you keep your fingers crossed. So it was just, uh, that it was really unfortunate to see, you know, Tim Rosefort was always, um, you know, you always felt like you'd learn a little bit of something about the game or about was uh, what was going on with the game when uh, he would have a TV segment. So, you know, it was just really unfortunate to hear. And, you know, I, you know, I'm hoping for a miracle for him. Likewise. I'm sorry to hear all this. I mean, rest in peace to uh, the, the beloved British announcer. I didn't catch the name, but. Um, he's not dead yet, Dave. Let, let's not. Oh, well, him. oh, sorry. <laughs> well, let's say then a salute to him for a great career. And I hope the best for you for him in his retirement. Oh, wait, no. Peter Alice did die. I thought you were talking about. Peter yeah, I was Mr. referring to him first. Yeah. Peter Alice. Yes. yes. OK. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yes. So that that's who I was referring to. And then as far as the one who's suffering from Alzheimer's, I, too, will root for a miracle. You know, um, just sad to see that, you know, great, great broadcasters, great commentators. 
you know, suffering from similar health things that other people do. And um, it happens. And as far as the case of uh, Mr. Alice, I, I think that's, I think it's a great career. And you're right. I, it's a shame we didn't get to hear it. You know, you, we miss out on a lot of great broadcasters from across the pond. And I think we've seen that in, in, in football, a.k.a. soccer over there. And we see it with golf as well. So I would like to have heard more of his, of his work. And maybe I will through YouTube once sometime. So that'd be interesting. Uh, question for you: Was he the one who had the call when the the guy the, the guy from France who it, who really had that meltdown at Carnoustie way back in the nineties? Remember this? Was yes, was, was the, the, I, I remember that happening. As yeah, a kid. like I distinctly remember it. Yeah. So was when they did the montage of that, like when they showed the highlights, was he was he doing the call for that, like for 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 the BBC or whoever was doing the the British Open at that time? Yeah. Well. On the U.S. coverage, I think it was Tarico with Faldo, and I think it was Azinger. Mm-hmm. But um, or actually, it might have been someone else. It was Tarico, Faldo, and someone else. I forget who. Yeah. Who I think is probably passed away. But yeah, you you'll, you will see. There's like two famous clips where, um, because remember, uh, Vandevelt's tee shot like goes right, he like he hits it way right, but it went right of the water, and we're like, oh, he's okay, and like Alice make, makes a comment like, oh, you lucky W. Yeah, then, yeah, I, so that was him, right? Okay, then, okay, okay, yes, okay. Yeah, I remember but that. Then there's like a more I forget exactly what he says, but like when Vandevelt is standing in the burn, like thinking about playing the shot, like Peter Alice is just like <laughs> this guy's completely lost his yes. mind. Yes, yeah. So that was so, him. Yeah, he, that's yeah. great. He's, he sort of had that Johnny Miller quality where <laughs> if he was going to do something stupid, he was going to say, like, what the hell are you doing? Exactly. So, he was not yeah. afraid to speak his mind. And he was just exactly. ripping him at the end of that. He was like, what is he? What is this? is a disgrace. I can't believe it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was Peter Alice. Yeah. That is indeed. That's awesome. So rest in peace for sure. I We really did miss that. I would have loved to have heard like more of that. Like was, He's very good. So... Well, with that in mind, we look ahead to the future, and there's some good events coming up. I think we have the 3M coming up this coming weekend, and it's all leading up to the playoff and the Tour Championship. Um, I could not, because that's a bad job out of me not knowing who's at the front of the FedEx leaderboard, but uh, let's give it to you for the road ahead. Some good events, and as I mentioned, this is our last uh, major, uh, or this is our last golf major recap of the year, so we'll pretty much take this to the end here, Mike. What, What do you see in the road ahead? Well, um, I would say that our road ahead right now is a little bit uncertain. That is because of this ongoing COVID pandemic. Now, to quickly touch on the 3M Open, uh, I think Dustin Johnson playing, Louis Oosthuizen's playing. I think there's a couple other guys who are somewhat decent playing. So actually not a terrible field for an event in Minnesota the week after the Open Championship in England. Better than I would have expected. Now, here's where things get interesting. The Olympic golf competition for men, the women are going to play on it at a different date, is scheduled for July 29th to August 1st. But we got this Delta variant now, and you're already hearing stories about... um, Athletes being infected, people not going. So who knows what's really going to happen with this? 
<clears throat> that when it comes down to it, how many people are going to say uh, maybe at the last minute, nah, I'm not going to go or whatnot. So, I mean, if you're able to get the players there, it should be exciting. It'll definitely be a much, um, a much more uh, competitive field than we had last time in Brazil, which is actually quite ironic. Cause remember, uh, Everyone basically saying, oh, I'm not going to Brazil because of that Zika virus. And what does Zika virus kill? About 10 people around the world. Yeah. And the uh, COVID has killed millions, but we got people going with COVID. So yeah, it's, it's funny how that works. So uh, I don't know. There's a lot up in the air about that. I know John mentioned this um, last time that, well, I, I wonder how they're going to um, in terms of timing, are they going to try to time this up so that it's on here at a time where maybe we can half watch it? I don't know. So um, we got to keep our eyes open for that. Oh, it's, yeah. It's only two weeks away. Yeah. Not. Um, what do we have going on after that? Uh, WGC, FedEx, St. Jude. That should be a good tournament. The swamp ass factor, notwithstanding, <laughs> Memphis, Tennessee in August. That's uh, yeah, that that's a tricky one. Uh, Wyndham Championship, Sedgefield Country Club. I really like that course. So um, that's one you always see guys showing up there trying to make a last ditch effort to qualify for the FedEx Cup. Northern Trust is in Jersey City. I think I'm actually going to go to that this year. I haven't been to a golf tournament actually now in a few years. So, oh, okay. Uh, I think yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah I'll, try, I'll, I'll try to get down to that. Very um, good. It, you know, that uh, course, Liberty National, it's not like the best pure course, but it's right on the water with like the views of New York City and yeah. the Statue of Liberty. So it's a beautiful place. So, mm-hmm. And uh, that will about do it. Um We'll have the BMW, which is actually in Maryland this year in Owings Mills. So that's a new course. Um, haven't seen that. And then the Tour Championship is September 2nd to 5th, which I'm assuming is Labor Day weekend, right? Yeah, so, I think so. Mm-hmm. Usually the yeah. first weekend of September. And, and yeah, that'll yeah. do it. Um, it will be interesting to see how I, you know, I'll text you, I'll text John, uh, like in like the first week of August, and say, "Hey guys, how are we feeling without a major championship right now?" I do think it'll be a little bit lonely, because yeah. although we do have the Olympics, but you know, there's there's just there's only so much going on in August. So yeah. I understand why the PGA did it. They they re- they had good reasons to do it, but I I do think we might be left. Uh, we might be left uh, wanting for some sports action in uh, August for sure. I think it's a great call because even last year we didn't really experience that because everything got pushed back due to the pandemic. But now we're going to feel it. Like we're going to have like a whole month with no major in the summer. That is weird. I, I'm not I'm not sure how it's going to feel for me. It's going to feel weird for sure. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, I kind of miss. I'm gonna miss it for sure. I, I always liked having that, that certainty, having a a recap in August. So, <laughs> for my podcast, it's gonna be a similar scenario. I'm like, oh, well, what am I gonna do for like the next few weeks? You know, I'm gonna have to make such a challenge for us here on the show too. Um, oh, and by the way, as far as the standings, it stands to reason, and I realize this stupidly now, that <laughs> in my stupidity, I forgot that when you win a major, you basically take the lead in the FedEx Cup season standings. That makes a lot of sense. So Murakawa's at the top. 
and Spieth is just behind, and Cantlay is just behind him, and John, John Rahm's just behind them. So that's a pretty solid top of the FedEx Cup. Too much can happen between now and then, Mike, so I won't even ask you to predict who's going to win the FedEx Cup. Who would know? Like, there's so much golf between now and then. Um, so it'd be good. So, Mike, I, I, I want to just give a shout-out to John and Andy. I'm, I'm sorry they couldn't make it tonight, but it's all right. I appreciate you coming on when you did. Um, as far as the rescheduling and everything, it's it's kind that you could come on as well. And I guess this wraps up another year of, of good golf coverage. It's been a lot of fun. Well, you know, Dave, we actually – this is my fault. I just had a complete brain fart. Um, we have the Ryder Cup. Oh, okay. But so I that's guess, coming yeah, up. Okay, oh, that's right. That's in this year. Yeah, that, that's going to be in October, though. But um, oh, okay. So, you know, that's why I wasn't immediately thinking of it because it's technically – so um, – I guess we'll go over the U.S. team real quickly. I oh, mean, yeah, we don't for know it. it for sure, but so at uh, 12 guys get in, or no, uh, eight qualify, and then mm-hmm. I think it's 12 total. So mm-hmm. right now, standings Morikawa, Johnson, DeChambeau, Kepka, Thomas, Shoffley, Spieth, Reed. Uh, yeah, that's your top eight automatic qualifiers. After that, uh, English, Cantley, Berger, Finau, Simpson, Scheffler. Kokrak, Horschel, Mickelson's actually at 17. That's a little bit surprising. Wow. I I didn't think he'd be that high. Um, So, I mean, I think that Team USA on paper has a much stronger. That's a good team. That's the strongest USA team I've seen in a while. But you can already see the storyline of how this is going to fall apart because we have the huge feud between Kepka and (laughs) DeChambeau. Right. right. They're going to have to put up with each other for a week. Also, great great job by Kepka after his Friday round coming in and saying, you know, "Eh, driver was great. I love my driver. Yeah. (laughs) I love um, it. Good for him. Yeah. Now, now see, the, the way European uh, qualifying works for the, the Ryder Cup is weird. It's you get um, – they have a world list and a European list. Mm-hmm. So European list right now, Rom, Fleetwood, Hatton, McElroy uh, – no, excuse me, Rom, Fleetwood, Hatton, Fitzpatrick, McElroy. Yeah. See, it's like – so then the world one would have Ustazen, right? Because he's been so close in all these No, majors. Ustazen's South African. He's not eligible. No, but – oh, so, the, so it's, it's strictly Europe because you mentioned a world ranking, so that's why I was confused. Well, no, what I'm saying is that it, it's weird. The, the U.S., what they do is they have uh, they have Ryder Cup standings, oh, and that's okay. how they figure out your automatic qualifiers. And then it used to be all automatic qualifiers. Now they have captain's picks. Okay. So what happens is, is the U.S. just has one list. The Europe has like a European points list and a world points list. Oh. And I forget exactly how it works. It's like you take okay. X off the European points list and then you take Y off of the world points list who aren't otherwise qualified through the European points. It's kind of weird. Uh, so, But it's still European players only. Okay. okay. Yeah, no. Um, world points list. This one is more in line with what you'd expect. Uh, okay. Rom, McElroy, Hovland, Hatton. Paul Casey, Matt Fitzpatrick, Lee Westwood, Tommy Fleetwood, Shane Lowry, uh, Victor Perez. So, deserving. yeah, yeah. Um, where Europe has a little bit of trouble is like 
um, like Poulter, Garcia, Rose, Westwood, all those guys are past it right. a little bit. So, right. I mean, like getting Hovland's going to be a big boost, but listen on paper the u.s team's a lot better but you know what on paper most years the u.s team is better so um that'll be interesting to see so yeah. that'll be fun as always yeah absolutely well that that that's a good way way to, to wrap it up mike and um again like as i was saying you know this is now this completes our decade of of coverage we started doing these recaps in 20 i think it was 2011 so that's like 10 years yep. And uh, this was our 11th year of doing these shows, and it's really fun. A lot has changed in golf in 11 years, about a decade of, of us doing these shows. And you go through the moments. They mentioned Darren Clark, which is actually interesting because we saw him at the end of the four, of the final round uh, on Sunday. That was interesting. I was like, oh, man, I hadn't seen him in so long. I totally forgot what he looked like. It was like, oh, wow. And he kind of felt, he kind of seized the moment. I think he got the sense. And I think you saw this too, right? Like, he got the sense of, like, this is going to be his last moment in the limelight because he probably will never be in a major again, let alone make the cut. So I sort of got that feeling. Did you get it too? Well, I think uh, – no, I think he can play. He can play in the Open Championship up until, like, he's 60, like, 2 or 63. Okay. Yeah, that's how – if you win the Open Championship, you get a – Exemption until you're like sixty something years old. Okay. So he, yeah, but yeah, he's already in his fifties. So, yeah, in terms of anything else but this, yeah, that's the only time you will see him. Yeah. The Clark, you know, the Clark win was interesting because he wasn't that. Uh, Andy had brought this up. He wasn't that old. The thing is, like, he looked a lot older than he was, mm-hmm. and he had his golf, like his form. It, it had really fallen off from where he was and like he was really good in like 1999 and then he fell off and was just kind of middling around and he won a major so it was a really nice story um and of course that that legendary press conference where he clearly had just been pounding drinks in the back and just comes out with the the pint of guinness and sticks it on the podium that was uh that was great so i'll always remember that one look at him and you could see you could see him downing pints of guinness in the back yeah. Uh, I like it, though. It's a great story. So I was happy to see him for a little bit on uh, Sunday. So, Mike, yeah, uh, let's give it to you for final thoughts. This has certainly been a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, it's hard to believe it's been 10 years. Yeah. One, one, thi- one thing I remember about being in high school is a substitute teacher actually telling us, he's like, one of the things you guys don't realize, but you will, it's like time will start to go by faster and faster and faster. It's like three years for you now seems like an eternity, but for me it seems like for you probably a few months. And you know, some things stick with you and some things don't. That has really stuck with me. Um, and case in point, the ten years it doesn't feel like it's been ten years. It feels like maybe it's been four or five, but. Uh, that that's the nature of time. We get good at passing time, and we get so good at passing it that it just speeds up and up and up and up, and yeah. away it goes. But um, yeah, w- we really had an incredible major year. Um, you know, Matsuyama becoming the first Japanese player to win a major at the Masters, and you know, being one of those guys, uh, one of those best who have not won a major, and he's able to grab that. <clears throat> 
Phil Mickelson becoming the oldest player to win a major uh, at 50 years old. That was just incredible. Hard to believe that happened. John Rahm being the, you know, the other young international player who we were expecting the major from, you know, confirming it, which is a uh, tremendous play down the stretch at Torrey Pines. And then Colin Morikawa winning his second major in two seasons and becoming the first player ever to win both the PGA and the Open Championship in his first attempt at each. So really a a year where every single major win was significant. We're going to remember the year for Phil Mickelson, I think, more than anything because he was a legendary player and just being, being, being senior tour eligible and winning a major is just that it's hard to fathom, but uh, really four good stories, four good tournaments. Now the masters was a little bit dull at the end, but um, yeah, it's a year we'll definitely remember for a long time to come. Yeah, I agree completely. And I do think you made, and you made that point when we did the recap of that, of the, uh, of the, of the PGA, that the Phil of all these events, Phil's is going to stand out for years and i agree with you so it just it's just part of what has been a really remarkable year of golf so it's interesting you know you know tiger woods isn't in the mix you get a lot of good golf i'm not I'm just saying i'm like you know maybe it doesn't have to be about that about him all the time you can still be as golf can still be a great sport it seems to be growing and i think we're in a good place and i like tiger you know but it doesn't have to be the entire story of of a, of a single sport and I think it's good that we got to see some variety this year, Mike. So I think that's well said. I'll, I'll see you soon. Thanks again. And, and we'll be in touch. Yeah. Uh, thank you again for all these cool spots. You do a great job. So, Mike, my thanks. And, and have a good one. All right. Thanks a lot, Dave. Take care. You bet. All right, Mike. So that's Mike in North Jersey. That was really fun. Um, the, 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 these are always fun to do. Um, we definitely are missing John and, and Andy tonight. But we hope they're doing well, and we thank them for all the work they've done with us. And thanks to Mike, too. Really a good time. And thanks to everybody who's tuned in, downloaded the podcast, or watched this live on YouTube tonight. Um, this is always, it's always good to spend some time with both, with all of you um, covering golf. And this, and your participation makes it so fun. So thank you very much for listening, everybody. Um, if you're looking for us, we're out on the web at ditcow.com. We're on socials at at Ditcow on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Ditcow. And if you have not yet subscribed, you can go to your podcast player of choice and look for Dave in the City Out West, and you can catch up on all things sports and other stuff. In fact, next week we're going to get into some soccer talk with our friend Parcells Falling Out, and hopefully, provided we can get the schedule together, we will recap a whole lot of international events. The UEFA Euro Cup for 2020, which was played in 2021, We'll talk about Copa America, the Olympics, the World Cup qualifiers, CONCACAF, Gold Cup, which I think is useless, but uh, all that coming up next week. Till then, have a wonderful rest of your week, and we'll see you next time.